Second reading comes from the book of Haggai. Uh, We'll be uh, hearing from Rick shortly uh, from this chapter. Haggai chapter 1 verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but they are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labour of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the the voice of the Lord their God, and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest and the spirit of the whole realm remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month. Here ends the reading. Well, good morning. My name's Rick and a big welcome to those of you who are here in the building and those of you who are watching online and happy Father's Day to the dads among us in the building and to those who are watching online. Hope you got spoiled this morning. Uh, We are starting a new series today in this book of Haggai. For the next four weeks, we're going to be looking through just these two chapters of the book of Haggai. And I'm conscious that this is an unfamiliar part of the Bible to many of us. It just kind of blends into one of those 
vaguely recognisable names of an Old Testament prophet. So can I encourage you to familiarise yourself with the book of Haggai to, one, to read it yourself a number of times over the coming weeks. It's only two chapters, it doesn't take long. But also to read Ezra chapters 1 to 6, because Ezra chapters 1 to 6 gives the historical background that the book of Haggai speaks into. So there's a a bit of a project for you to do over the coming weeks to familiarise yourself with what we're doing. Well, let me pray as we uh, continue to reflect on this bit of God's word together. Heavenly Father, your, your word tells us that all scripture is breathed out by you and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness. And so, Father, we pray that that will be true for us this morning. Father, may your spirit that breathed out these words so work in our hearts to produce faith and to grow faith, to correct, rebuke, to train in righteousness so that we will live lives that bring glory and honour to you and to your son Jesus and in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, I'm familiar that this is a, a, a not a particularly Sorry, I'm conscious that this is not a particularly familiar part of the Bible to many of us. So I wanted just to start this morning by painting a little bit of a picture of the historical scene that the book of Haggai is about and where it fits into the story of the Bible. And so we've got a, a timeline there, which, uh, yeah, great. Can you read that up the back there? Yeah, excellent. So this is the third last book of the Old Testament. And quite helpfully, we're given a very specific date in chapter 1, verse 1, of when this occurred. It says it's the second year of King Darius, that's the king of Persia, and that helps us to date this at 520 BC. So we're 500 years approximately before Jesus and 500 years after King David and King Solomon, who we know, right, that was kind of the high point in the history of Israel, King David and his son Solomon. And they were, when King David was reigning and Solomon was reigning, they were at peace with the nations around them. The wealth of the nations was flowing into Israel. And significantly for our story, King Solomon used that wealth that they had to build a temple for God. It was a grand and majestic building and it symbolised God's presence with his people Israel. It said to the world, Israel is God's people and he is with them and it was magnificent. That was kind of the high point in Israel's history. But now we are 500 years after that approximately and things couldn't have been more different. Things couldn't have been worse really. Israel and their, and their kings had progressively over those 500 years turned away from God. Idolatry and injustice had become the mark of the nation and God had been sending prophets to them again and again, warning them to turn back to him or his judgment will come on them. But they refused to listen. And so eventually that judgment did come on them. And so in 722 BC, which is not up on the timeline there, Assyria, the nation of Assyria, conquered the northern part of Israel and it was destroyed. And then in 587 BC, which is on there, the Babylonians came and they conquered the southern part of the kingdom, including Jerusalem, and the people were taken away from Jerusalem into exile in Babylon. 
And so Israel was left desolate. Jerusalem was in ruins. And significantly for our understanding of Haggai, the temple was destroyed. That great symbol of God's presence in all its brilliance, covered in gold and costly things, it was, it was gone. It was burnt down, it was destroyed, and all the valuable things were taken away. God said this was his judgment on Israel for abandoning him. But it wasn't the end of the story. God had promised that he would restore them. And in 539 BC, Babylon was conquered by Persia. And Persia's king Cyrus, he issued a decree saying that the nations that had been exiled to Babylon could go home. And that included the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, back to their homelands. And so they were allowed to go. And not only did he allow them to go home, he sent them, he said, on God's instruction to rebuild the temple and he gave them the precious artefacts from the temple to help them rebuild. And among those who went back to rebuild the temple were none other than Zerubbabel and Joshua, who we have just met in chapter 1, verse 1 of Haggai. But that was 20 years ago, from Haggai's point of view. We're now 20 years later on, and the temple is still in ruins. So what does God have to say to these people? That's what we're looking at today. And the first thing we're going to see is that these people have a problem with their priorities. They have a problem with their priority. It is never the right time for them to rebuild God's temple, to invest in that. Let me read from verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild God's house. God is not happy with them. And the reason that he is not happy with them is because, as I said, they're not rebuilding the temple. They've been in the land for nearly 20 years, but the temple is still in ruins, and they're saying now is not the right time to rebuild God's house. Now, to be fair to these guys, they had some pretty good reasons for not rebuilding the temple. This was a small, struggling community there weren't many of them. They've come back to a ruined city and they're trying to get life up and running as best they can. They're facing material need. There's a lack of resources. They're financially hard up. And to make it even more difficult, they've been facing opposition from the people around them. When they start, first got back there and they tried to start rebuilding, some of the local kind of lackeys of the Persian government started opposing them and forced them to stop. So the building project stalled. They had good reasons for not rebuilding the temple. But their good reasons end up kind of looking more like excuses than reasons. They end up looking foolish when God comes to rebuke them. You see, all their reasonable excuses disappear when God stands back and he compares his house that they're meant to be rebuilding with their own houses. Let me read from verse 3 now and verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? See, they were busy building their own houses. 
and making them nice and finished, while God's house remains in ruins. You see the contrast that God is, is drawing? There's a, their houses, panelling them, making them look good, making them finished, and down the road there's a pile of rubble, still burned and blackened, and nothing is happening. It's like this. Imagine, you know, in January we had those bushfires and houses were destroyed. And often, you notice in bushfires, sometimes one house can be destroyed and burned and the house next to it is left standing. Imagine your house gets burned down in in that situation and your neighbour's house is left standing and your neighbour says, look, I'll help you to rebuild your house. And so you go to ask them one day if they can if they can come and help rebuild, and they say, oh, look, I'd love to, but I just can't right now. You know, I'm just, I'm flat out at work. You know, life is really busy. Family life is, is a real struggle. And you go, okay. But then you do that again the next day and again over weeks and again over months, and the same answer comes back. And you look over the fence and you see that your neighbour is actually busy putting a patio on the back of their house or building a swing for their kids, or putting in an air conditioning system. It kind of says something, doesn't it? You know, there's a nearly finished patio on one side of the fence and a blackened pile of rubble on the other side of the fence. What does that say about those excuses? I mean, maybe they are busy at work. Maybe they are having a lot of difficulties in family life. Life circumstances are hard but they've managed to find time to do the things that they want to do. It's not a matter of excuses, it's a matter of priorities. And that's what God is saying to the Israelites. That's what he's accusing them of. They were more concerned with themselves and with their own lives than with God. And so God says to them in verse 5, give careful thought to your ways. And what he means when he says that in verse 5 is, have a look at your life. How's it going for you at the moment? Give careful thought to what your life is like at the moment. Look at verse 6. This is what they should notice. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Nothing is going well for these guys. They're putting in a lot of effort, but they're not getting much back. Nothing is satisfying. Nothing is working out for them. And here's the thing, right? They think this is the reason why they think they need to put all their effort into getting their life sorted, getting their houses finished. Life is hard, and so that's where they want to put their energy. But God is saying, actually, no, this is happening because you are chasing after your own things while completely neglecting my house. Look at verse 9, he says, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own houses. Therefore, I declared, sorry, therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for drought on the fields, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, and so on. God was against them in the very things that they were working so hard to achieve. They're trying to kind of pile things up for themselves, but God says he blew it away. It's like trying to rake leaves on a windy day. You know how frustrating that is? You pile it up and it blows away. 
And God is saying, take a hint. If the words of the prophet are not enough for you, at least look at your lives. Things are not going well for you, and this is why. Your priorities are messed up. You're busy building your own houses, but you're neglecting mine. God was withholding blessing, preventing their prosperity, causing hardship, because they were neglecting the things of God while they chase after their own concerns. Now, this raises some questions for us, doesn't it? I mean, particularly with regard to the things of prosperity and suffering and my own faith in God and my own sin. So, for example, can we say, can we say that if things are going badly for me, that's God's judgment on me? And on the other hand, that if my life is going well with health and wealth and prosperity, that's because God is pleased with me. And if I want to prosper, well, just trust God. Turn to God and he will prosper you. Your life will turn around, everything will be great. And if it's not, then that's because you're not trusting God enough. Is that what this is teaching us? No, I don't think that's what, that's what this is teaching us. And let me tell you why. We need to make sure that we understand what covenant we are in, what promises God has made to us compared to the promises that he made to Israel. You see, when Israel entered the promised land, God made a covenant with them and made promises to them. And he said, if you trust me and follow my ways, I will bless you. But if you turn from me, I will curse you in exactly these kinds of ways that he's describing here and that they're experiencing now. God specifically promised material blessings or curses if they live faithfully or unfaithfully in the land that he was giving them. And so here in Haggai, God is saying to them, this is what is happening. These are the fulfillments of the covenant curses that I promised back in Deuteronomy. They're meant to turn you back to me. But we are not under that covenant. We are not living in that promised land under that covenant. We are living under a new covenant. And I have to say, an even better one. The blessing of our covenant, the promise that God offers us, is his Holy Spirit living in us. We have God himself with us. I mean, how much better is that? And the promise of future material blessing in his new creation. So we need to recognise what promises God has made to us. It's not the blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience. And more than that, it's always been the case that we can't draw a one-to-one -one connection between my sin and my bad things happening to me. I mean, think of Job, right? We know the story of the book of Job in the Old Testament. That, God says that's the, that's the big message of it. His suffering was not because of his sin. And it is unkind to suggest that it is. And it is presumptuous to know the mind of God when we don't. We need to be very careful about drawing a one-to-one -one connection between my suffering and my sin or my prosperity and my faithfulness. Now, having said that, the New Testament does teach that God disciplines those he loves, like a father disciplines his children, which I guess is a good thing to think about on Father's Day. Fathers discipline their children. What parent who loves their child doesn't discipline them to want to bring them back onto the right path? And the New Testament says God does that as an act of love to keep us following him faithfully. 
Sometimes hard things in life can be God's tap on the shoulder to say, hey, what are you doing? Look at what you're doing. Consider your ways. But here's the thing, right? We can't necessarily know whether some particular difficulty that I'm experiencing in my life, whether this is God's discipline on me because I'm not living the way that I should be, or if it's just part of the general suffering of living in a fallen world. We can't necessarily know that. So what do we do? Here's what I think we need to do in this situation. If something is not going well in life, we should say, well, maybe. You know, this might be God's discipline to turn me away from some unrepentant sin in my life. And so we should search our hearts. We should consider our ways. And if there is something that we need to turn from, then we should turn from it. And if that turns out to be something that does change our circumstances, well, great. But if it doesn't change anything, it may be that my suffering is just part of living in a fallen world. But, you know, it was still worthwhile to have considered, to have reflected, considered my heart, considered my ways, found any unrepentant sin and turned from that. That's always a good thing to do, whether or not it changes the difficulties in my life or not. So I guess what I'm saying is we need to have a nuanced understanding of what consider your ways means for us today. Let's move on to our final point now. What God says to the Israelites is get your priorities right and build for the glory of God. Build for the glory of God. Let me read from verse 7 and 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. Get to work, God says. Stop running after your own concerns and build my house. And did you see why? Did you see what the reason is that he gives? Not so that it will start going well for you all of a sudden, not so that God will bless you and lift the drought and, and, and start working for them instead of against them. Even though we've just read all these things that God is doing against them, the reason that he gives them, the motivation that he gives them, is not the hope of blessing or the removal of discipline. He says, do it so that I may be honoured. Build my house so that I may be glorified. You see, as I said before, the temple had become the physical symbol of God's presence among them. It said to the world, Israel is God's people and he is with them. And its splendour and its beauty and the prosperity of the nation reflected God's power and God's glory. And it showed the world how great he was. But it's lying in ruins. God has brought them back to the land and they're working hard to rebuild their own houses but they're making no effort to rebuild this symbol of God's presence among them and so bring glory to him. God wants them to seek first his honour, his glory, his pleasure. He's promised to look after them, but he wants them to get their priorities right and build for the glory of God. So what does that mean for us, build for the glory of God? 
There's no longer a physical temple and God doesn't want us to build a physical building, a physical temple. This isn't a, a call to fund a building project for the church. Churches are not temples. But we have something even better to work for, to build for. That magnificent building that Solomon built with all its gold and its silver that God commanded Zerubbabel and Joshua to rebuild, that monument to the glory of God where God chose to put his spirit, his dwelling place on earth, that's not a physical building anymore. That's us. That's you and me. As we put our trust in Jesus, he puts his spirit in us individually and even more so collectively together. We are the temple of God. We are the living stones of a spiritual temple built on the foundation of Jesus as we put our trust in him. And so we build for the glory of God by investing in us, in our faith and in the faith of each other. When we work to live with the fruit of faith, when we invest in growing the fruit of the Spirit, when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and when we encourage others to do the same so that we might be built up together, that's how we build God's house. That's how we bring glory and honour to God. And so God is saying to each one of us what he said to the Israelites. Make sure you get your priorities right. Look for those things and prioritise those things that will bring glory to God whether it's in my own life or as I seek to build up the people around me. The Israelites were lacking in zeal for God. And I suspect that we can often be the same. I mean, I know, I know that I can. I think sometimes we find ourselves wondering why our spiritual life is not what we would like it to be. Maybe we don't find the joy and the satisfaction and the peace with God that we long to have. We don't grow in faith that we would like to, in, in the ways that we would like to. But at the same time, we're investing in everything else first. How often do we run after our own things, thinking, I need to get this part of my life sorted before I can really start thinking about what God wants me to do and how I can invest in the glory of God? You know, I need to get established in my career first before I can give any real time to serving others or my study is too important or I need to get my mortgage or my savings under control before I can think about giving money to the work of the gospel or for those of us who are parents and I think about this particularly for myself we spend so much time and energy don't we? Running around to give our kids all the things that we want them to have and that we think they need, the music lessons, the sport, the, the education. But then we give the afterthought or the very little time or energy on how to raise our kids in the training and instruction of the Lord. Or for those of us who are in or nearing retirement, I need to get my retirement goals in place before I think about how I will serve God with the rest of my life. And I say these things as someone who struggles with these very things. With all, well, maybe not so much the retirement thing, but with all these things. This struggle to put God first, it's not easy. It's the struggle of the life of faith. 
this side of heaven. God says to each one of us, seek first his kingdom and his glory. Let those be my first priorities in life. And as I kind of reflect on this for myself and as I talk about this with other people, I know that there are times when it's not always easy to answer the question, well, how can I work out how to bring glory to God in some particular aspect of my life? That question can sometimes be difficult to answer. But I reckon the real problem for us in this regard is not that we can't work out the answer, it's that we're not even asking the question. We're just doing the things that we want to do without really thinking, how can I bring glory to God in this aspect of my life, with my money, with my time, with my energy, with my words, with my actions, with my zeal. I think the real trick is, is not even just finding the answer, but just asking the question. If we start with the question, how can I bring glory to God in my life? I mean, surely that's got to get us 90% of the way there, right? And as we do that, we have that same promise that God made to the Israelites. He says in verse 13, I am with you. I am with you. This is the wonderful promise that Jesus also gives to us. He says, I am with you always. This is how relationship with God works. Live for his glory, seek his kingdom, and enjoy the goodness, the comfort, the security of knowing that God is with us no matter what. So I guess the question this leaves us with is, will you trust him as you seek to live your life? Will you trust him to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and build for the glory of God. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts, you know our priorities, you know the things that occupy our minds, whether in joy or in anxieties. Father, we ask that you'll help us to seek first the things that bring you honour and glory. Seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Father, give us the confidence in you to do that. And Father, we ask this, that you may be honoured and glorified in our lives and that we may build up your church, build your kingdom through the lives of the people around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.